Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 to 18. Let's give our uh, attentive listening to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, send us your Holy Spirit to teach us the word. Give us receptive, humble, teachable hearts. And shape us, conform us into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. And uh, we have not come to the passage in the book of Revelation that contains probably the most uh, well-known, at the same time the most misunderstood number uh, in the entire Bible, and that is the number 666. Um, people throughout history have approached this kind of two different ways, one more sort of cultural, superstitious kind of way, and the other more serious, political kind of way. So the more superstitious cultural way would be, um, for example, when you have finally hit 665 friends on Facebook, do you add another friend? who might be the Antichrist. <laughs> when your car hits on the odometer 666,000 miles, do you keep driving it? Because it might be possessed by the devil. These are the silly sort of cultural superstitions that come with the number 666. If I have the phone number 666, do I dial it? Right, that kind of thing. The more serious political approach to this has been people throughout history trying to identify who is this villain um, that contains or carries this symbolic number 666, and people have conjectured all kinds of things, including Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Kim Jong-il. There was even a whole book treatment, book-length treatment, uh, dedicated to arguing that the Antichrist and the one who carries the mark of the beast is none other than Ronald Reagan, uh, who has six letters in his first, middle, and last name. Ronald Wilson Reagan. Uh, and then it went on to Bill Clinton, to Osama bin Laden, so on and so forth. Um, thankfully, right, time has proven these misinterpretations to be wrong, right, if not outright silly. Uh, but unfortunately, this guessing game still goes on for a lot of people today. Okay. Uh, still a lot of people within American, especially American evangel evangelicalism, 
this guessing game goes on. Some think it's Putin. Uh, some think it's Kim Jong-un. And that's unfortunate, right, for that to continue on today because uh, it's a very flawed understanding of what Revelation is as an apocalyptic vision. Okay. The point is not to calculate literal numbers from the vision to identify a literal person. Versus, verse 18 itself, right, says this calls for wisdom, meaning spiritual insight, not clever calculations and math skills. Uh, this calls for wisdom, meaning seeing what God sees. Um, according to Proverbs, wisdom is what stirs in us greater fear of God, reverence of God, and awe of God in our hearts. That's wisdom. Uh, if you get anything out of this, it should stir up a greater sense of awe, reverence, and worship in your heart, and not simply a finger-pointing thing where you point to someone and say, ah, that's the one. Verse 18 calls us for wisdom or spiritual discernment or spiritual insight. Okay, and, and note too, right? It's not wisdom that's needed for the number only. It's wisdom for the whole verse, right? Uh, and it's really wisdom that's needed for the whole passage and the whole book of Revelation. And when you consider our series so far, uh, what we've been looking at so far, I think when you put that number into context of other numbers we've been looking at, this begins to make a bit more sense. What has been the number that represents God's divine perfection in the book of Revelation? Seven, right? Uh, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven angels, right? So if you were to work out the entire verse in context of that, I think what you would have is something what the theologian Michael Wilcock described it as uh, here you have a human number as opposed to a divine number. And what, what might that suggest? It's trying to look like God, it's trying to imitate God's truth, imitate God's perfection, but it falls just short. But it keeps coming. Just as the seven kept coming, seven, 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 um, this kind of false religion False alternative to God, false hope, false meaning in life will keep coming one after another and another six, six, six. Uh, the beast is really leading the church to these successive falsehoods, false hopes, false ways of life as, as the woman representing the church is running in the wilderness, the desert. That's what this vision is about. And uh, it tells us, right, we need wisdom to see it. Last week, uh, the call was for endurance and faith. This week, the call is for wisdom and discernment. Okay. So here's three things we want to try to discern today uh, with the help of this passage. We're going to try to discern the beast and his true agenda. We're going to try to discern our hearts and the idols in our hearts. And lastly, discern our true identity as opposed to our false identities, okay? So discerning the beast and its agenda, discerning our hearts and our idols in the heart, and discerning our true identity as opposed to our false identities, okay? These three. So first, let's discern the beast and his agenda. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, okay? The two horns like a lamb is an allusion that ties this passage to Daniel chapter 8, where you see a ram with two horns. And that's very consistent with how the first beast had ties to Daniel chapter 7. So it's really a continuing allusion to the prophet Daniel and his vision uh, through this second beast as well. And it, has, it says here, it has the appearance of a lamb, 
unlike the first beast. It has an appearance of a lamb, and yet when it speaks, it speaks like the dragon, or the dragon that appeared in the previous chapter. Um, And it seems to um, mimic, therefore, what's Christ-like, what's true, what's divine, what's saving. When, in fact, it is the devil. Uh, Jesus said false Christs, right, false saving figures, savior figures will arise, false prophets will arise uh, and appear and even perform great signs to deceive even the elect, Matthew 24. And so that's, that's the warning he gave his disciples and to the church to be sober-minded about signs and wonders and miracles, modern-day saviors that arise to promise you uh, here is your uh, meaningful way of life. Here is the truth as opposed to Christ, his kingdom, his mission, and his calling. The devil uh, seems to have this goal in mind. Uh, take a look at verse 12. Um, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Right? There's a common agenda as a first beast, and that is to make you worship. Worship the wrong savior. Worship the beast as your savior and king. Okay? And it says here whose mortal wound was healed. Remember, the first beast had the mortal wound on his head where the crown goes, the diadem that symbolizes political power and influence. And in that picture, we saw how even though it was wounded, it was healed. And we examined how that could be an indication that you know, we're not to fight this beast through political means. Because uh, even if you do that, uh, it will just pop right back up. It will just be healed and continue to exercise its, its influence, its power. Um, this is to reiterate the point. Your battle, the church's battle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual forces of darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. This is a spiritual battle, not a political one. Okay? And it's fought over a spiritual territory, not a, not a political territory. Not Senate seats, seat in the White House, but who is seated in your heart and the center of your worship? Okay. That's the kind of wisdom this vision is calling us to, to focus on. The thing we're called to discern here is how the beast is calling you to worship the wrong Christ in your heart. Okay. The, the potentially really grave mistake uh, that we can make and many have made, is trying really hard to identify the Antichrist out there and, and become completely blind to and miss out on all the Antichrist-like things in our own lives, in our own culture, in our own family, in our own, even in our own church. Okay. These things that could be lurking in our hearts, in our own lives, we could be blind to if all we're focusing on is who is the Antichrist? Who is the person with the number 666 who's out there? Because I'm completely immune from that somehow. Guys, um, Jesus might say to you, if that's what you think, why do you seek to identify the, the speck of the beast in your neighbor's eyes and fail to see the log of the beast in your own eye? Why do you try to see the antichrist-like features out there and fail to see the antichrist-like features in you? And, and guys, uh, who was this letter written to? Think about that. When the Apostle John received these visions, 
wrote this letter, why did he not send this straight to Caesar? Why did he not send this to Rome, to the senators of Rome? Who did he send it to? To you, to me, to the church. Look out for this beast and his mark and his agenda in the midst of you. Don't worry about Caesar, worry about you. Uh, Let's not miss that. So we can really discern the, the beast and his true agenda against the church. He is after our hearts and to call us to worship from our hearts the wrong Christ, the wrong Savior, and to live, therefore, after the wrong meaning in life. So that takes us to the next point, and that is discerning then what happens, then, what is happening, what's been happening in our hearts, and um, how can we identify if there are any idols in our hearts? Okay. Um, worshiping the beast doesn't mean you have to necessarily attend a satanic temple. It doesn't mean you have to belong to some religious cult, okay? It's all a matter of the heart. John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. Uh, day in, I mean, it's an assembly line of idols. We're just pumping out idols day after day, hour after hour. How do we identify them? Whether we are worshiping these idols in our hearts. Here's, here's one simple approach to start with. One simple approach to start with could be, could be discerning and noticing how you respond to seasons of loss, seasons of disappointment, and seasons of failure. When you begin to lose your grip on certain things in your life, how do you respond? And how, what is the condition of your heart? Uh, how do you respond when your career path takes a real hit? Uh, how do you respond when you experience failure or get an F from a professor? How do you respond when you run out of money? How do you respond when the economy fails? How do you respond when your, when your political allegiances seem to lose all influence? Uh, what happens when your loved one gets an incurable disease? Uh, is there any peace in your heart still? Is there any joy left, any contentment, any thanksgiving? Or does something beastly start growing inside you when these things happen? Fear and anger and bitterness, anxiety and despair and hopelessness because you have lost your grip on these things. Maybe you even feel a lack of will to live in the face of losing uh, these precious things. These are signs of nothing less than a savior who's failed you. Your heart weeping over a savior whom you have worshiped and trusted, but now have nevertheless failed you. Uh, here's the flip side of that coin. Then what does give you the sense, you know, life has meaning. Uh, my, I have value. I have worth. Okay, that could also indicate what your idols are. Uh, it says in verses 13 and 17, uh, this beast makes fire come down from heaven to earth, this wonderful signs. And verse 14, by the signs it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the beast has a way of captivating its audience, right? Through signs, signs that imitate God's signs, uh, like the fire coming down from heaven for Elijah in 1 Kings. And 
the greatest of these signs that's being highlighted here is it being wounded by the sword as, as if it was about to be slain, and yet, and yet it lives. It lives again. It's the way it mimics immortality. It, it mimics eternal life, and therefore the source of true, lasting meaning in life. Scripture tells us that's found in God and God alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Idols are things that are lodging in our hearts that seem to be saying to us that in order to live a truly meaningful way of life, you must have it, and it's not God. That's your idol, whatever that it is. And when your heart becomes captivated by that it, 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 it will begin to show. It will show in how you live, how you think, how you speak, how you behave, because your life, all of your life, your money, your habits, your feelings, your daydreams, your words, your deeds will begin to be surround, will begin to surround this idol, revolve around this idol that you now worship as your true Lord and Savior. And here's the thing. You, the reason why you do that is because in the face of threats and many swords on this side of heaven, in this broken and fallen world, your idols seem to be promising you, even if you were to face the sword, if you have this, yet shall you live again. If you have this, no matter what threat you face in life, you will remain standing, immortal, eternal. That's your idol. Whatever you turn to and say, because I have this, I'm saved. That is your false savior in God. Uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller explains idols uh, further in a very helpful way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That is a counterfeit God. Uh, he says, it is anything so central, essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's the same idea, right? Should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. But because you have it, even if I were to face all the threats and swords in life, yet shall I live again. Because you have your idol, it makes you feel as though your life is worth living. Even if you're wounded, you will live again. That's how the idols function in our hearts. Um, some more maybe tangible examples of this. Right? If you were to say in your heart of hearts, deep down inside, my life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this amount of financial security and freedom. That's materialism idolatry. You worship money. You're saved because of money. Uh, my life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have, if I have power and control over my life, or the party or tribe I swear allegiance to have power and control over other aspects of life. You worship power. You have a power idolatry. My life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I find my Mr. or Mrs. Right. That's relationship idolatry. You're worshiping romance. My life only has meaning. I only have worth if I achieve a particular kind of look or body image. 
That's image idolatry, worshiping people's perception of you. Now, these things tend to appear quite innocent in our day-to-day lives, but as you inevitably begin to lose your grip on these things, things that are not meant to be lasting, not meant to secure your eternity, uh, we get very quickly self-destructive, don't we? And for lack of a better word, we turn kind of demonic. Uh, If you worship power, think about it. That hunger makes you completely unsympathetic to weakness. Uh, And the loss of power tends to lead you towards anger and rage. And therefore, it, it keeps you far, far away from depending on the power of God. If you worship materialism, that kind of hunger will only make you greedier, more selfish, And the loss of money, loss of wealth, leads you to greater anxiety and fear, stinginess. And it will make you ultimately distrust God's provision and his generosity towards you. If you worship self-image, that hunger leads to pride, narcissism. And the loss of that will lead to shame, self-rejection. It makes you hate God's call to humility selflessness, call to rest in God's beauty, his glory. If you worship romance, that kind of obsession will lead to objectifying the other person. Loss of such a relationship will fuel your lust for what is not yours, and it will blind you from God's true, sacrificial, selfless love. You see how these things that we choose to worship apart from God, can have the power to deceive us initially and then ultimately destroy us, ruin us. That's how idols work, from the heart, inside out. It starts by captivating our imagination, then it takes over our hearts and then the rest of our lives. That's what you're called to discern. As disciples of Jesus the Christ, who have put your idols to death and put your faith in him, you you have died to your idols, to sin and death, so that you find in him everlasting meaning in life, true meaning in life. You find in worshiping him your lasting peace and joy and thanksgiving. And now the life you live is quorum Deo, which means before God alone. You live by his power, according to his provisions, in humility before him, beholding his beauty and glory, growing in love with his love. That's the life you live now as a worshiper of Jesus the Christ. So I want to encourage you to, as a way to maybe bring a practical end to the second point, to take some time today, uh, think about, pray about, maybe journal, the idols of your heart. Start with, start here. Start with your most negative and strongest emotions. Okay. Uh, ask God to show you through those moments, what have you been really treasuring other than God? Okay. Ask God, God, what are these strong, beastly reactions <laughs> revealing to me about my heart? Please give me wisdom and help me see. Is it pleasure? Is it money? Is it comfort? Is it pride? What am I turning to for salvation? And Lord, may I turn away from these things now and turn to you.
with intentionality, with repentance, may I turn to Christ now for the life, the everlasting life from Him. Okay. And as we um, strive to practice that and grow in this direction, I think one area that you have to, I have to grow most urgently in, in this sort of day and age is in our thoughts, our imaginations, uh, meditations regarding our identity, our identity, okay? So let me close with that last point, discerning our, our true identity as opposed to our false ones. Um, if you look at verse 15, it talks there about how the image of the beast that's been raised by its worshipers now has breath, it's come to life through those who worship the beast, and then they begin to call for the slaying of those who refuse to worship the beast. Okay, so on the one hand, I think one very clear implication there is, as Christians, you will suffer persecution. Um, and Christians have suffered literal slaying, right? Physical, political persecution, either by states or other religions, and have been, are still subjugated under the sword. That's one meaning to that. Um, this is part of the cross we carry as people of God. We suffer Tremendous persecution. On the other hand, this could include the broader implication, the cultural implication as well, where uh, it includes the, the kind of tribalistic, partisan polemic in our culture that says you either affirm everything that I am or you're denying everything that I am. You either affirm all of my truth or you're rejecting all of my truth. You either validate my identity or you're canceling my identity. Okay. If you don't affirm, validate everything that I am, every truth that I believe, then we cannot coexist. One of us must be slain. Okay. I think that's a fair description of kind of the cultural moment we're in right now. Okay. And that's, it makes sense because identity idols are all-consuming. And whatever comes between you and your identity, you will see as a threat, an existential threat that must be slain. Verse 16 adds this, uh, the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Okay, this is a helpful addition. The mark of the beast is, is, is symbolic. It's not literal. It's not physical, okay? Um, it's not a microchip that gets planted in your arm or something like that, okay? It's being put on the right hand. That symbolizes your actions. Uh, it's being put on the forehead. That symbolizes your head and your primary identity, how you represent yourself, how you present yourself to the world. Uh, it will take over both, your whole being, how you identify yourself, what you conceive about yourself, and how you behave as a result. Right? It does have kind of this top-down effect. Your, your imaginations, your identification up here leads to your behavioral life. Um, I mean, this is even how cognitive therapy today works, right? If we channel our thinking in a certain direction, then our behavioral life will move in that same direction. That's what they stress, right? And we can therefore affect our feelings and behavior through how we think and particularly what we think about ourselves, okay? And there's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. And Puritans uh, often made a similar point how if you, if you exercise wisdom and spiritual insight, then you will have the ability to discern underneath the behavior, underneath even feelings, the underlying thoughts and beliefs about who you are. Okay. Let me give you an example. And this might be a bit too personal. 
uh, but bear with me. Let's say your children are disobedient and they're not obeying you. And you lose your temper and you start yelling at them. Before you say, they've made me angry, if you listen to wisdom and look underneath, wisdom will tell you there's an underlying thought there. And the underlying thought is, you are a great person of great authority who must be obeyed. And if they do not recognize you for who you are, they deserve your wrath. Underlying my anger, uh, wisdom tells me, uh, I have this wrong self-identity lurking underneath. Let's say you're anxious and just fearful of your future because you just got hit with an unexpected bill. And as you, as you look at it, you think about the future, you lose all your joy, you lose all your feeling of contentment. There's only fear, only worry. Before you say, I'm worried and I'm fearful because this happened and I have this bill, wisdom will ask you to look underneath and say to you, you only feel this way because you identify yourself as a cosmic orphan in this universe without a heavenly father who will provide for you. That is your self-identity that's causing these feelings of anxiety and fear. Something else verse 17 tells us is how you know, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Right? This refers back to you know, chapters 2 and 6 where the early church did face economic like sanctions uh, for not participating in Caesar worship. Because if you wanted to do commerce, you had to pay tribute to Caesar oftentimes. So if you don't, you practically go bankrupt. You will suffer huge financial losses. Now, this is a relevant point for us today because what is the currency of our day? It's not money. We actually frown upon people with a lot of money today. The currency of the day is your identity, your social currency. Uh, what you put forth as, this is what I'm about, this is who I am. Whether that's you know, uh, having a nice job, having a nice degree, uh, living in a nice home, having a nice family, having a nice body image. Okay? Whatever it may be, uh, the currency of today is identity. Money, relationships, family's well-being. Okay? Those very same things that cause us to be anxious, fearful, materialistic, greedy, or lustful. Um, you know why it does that? Because the number we're, here, we're after here is not the number seven of divine perfection, but six. The number that never, ever, ever satisfies. The identity we try to find in all these temporary identity markers we have in the world, it will never give us rest and only demand more. The number that always just falls short, the identity that always just falls short, the, the vacation that always feels just insufficient, the job that just feels stressful enough to make me go, oh, only if. Everything we face in life will only, I mean, it will get close. Uh, maybe it will take you from four to a five and five to a six, but it will never get you to seven where you say, it is well. And it is well 
with my soul. No partner, no spouse, no job, no house, no amount of money will make you say, I am complete. I have sevens in my life and not sixes. This is where we're being called to the proper mark of the lamb on your forehead. And it's the seven number of Christ's divine perfection. What has Christ given us as, a, as our true identity marker? Behold, what love has the Father lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us to the world. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, aliens, homeless people in this world to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What if we started living like this? That my life is not about declaring the excellencies of me, but of him. How freeing would that be? If my life is not about the excellencies of my marriage, of my children's well-being, of my possessions, of my home, of my appearance, but the excellencies of Christ, my Lord, and my Savior. Then uh, you'll be living in a series of sevens in divine perfection and completion. Until then, in all these substitute counterfeit gods, all you'll get is something that's just falling short. Do you know who you truly are? Are you crossing out the seven on your forehead, trying to write a six on it because you're not content with what Christ has won for you? Uh, remember who you are in Christ. And remember and behold who he makes you to be even today, even now. Uh, if you don't know where to start, I want to ask you to start here. Um, Start by deepening your life and revolving your life around life, the life of the church. And by the church, I don't mean uh, just this building or something like that. I mean the body of Christ and making God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, more visible in every sphere of your life because that's the church's mission. Here's a quote from John Frame I'm going to close with. He says, quote, The headquarters of the kingdom is the church the community of those who worship and follow God in Jesus. But God's intention is that believers will not keep the kingdom to themselves, but will bring it to all spheres of human life. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as believers take their faith into their workplaces and culture, they take the kingdom with them. They reach unbelievers with the gospel as Jesus commanded. But even when their associates remain unconverted, they seek to do their work in line with Jesus' standards. And only at the Lord's return, everything will be transformed and the creation will be complete. 
but it begins now. Jesus compares the kingdom to little things that grow large, a mustard seed, leaven. He compares them to common things that have uncommon importance. Believers are salt and light in the world. And he teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The picture that John Frame is painting here is, here in this sort of mustard seed microscopic world life we live in, awaiting the macro picture of the kingdom of God descending down to earth. What we're doing is we're taking all these little moments we have, these these little tasks we do from day to day, little encounters and all the relationships we have, God has placed in our hands and we, we hold it up to God and we say, God, your kingdom come right here. Your will be done right here in this task, in this moment, in this hour, in this decision, in this relationship, your will be done until he returns and completes all things. Make it your resolve um, to state as your identity, I live to worship Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this vision. We thank you for showing us uh, the, the beast that falls just short, the number that falls just short, the, the way of life, the meaning of life that falls just short of satisfying our hearts created after, wired after your completion. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, may we remember this truth. And Lord, may we worship you alone and grow uh, in our in our Christ-likeness even now. May we take Christ and his kingdom into our everyday lives, into our every uh, task, every relationship, every moments of the day, so that, Lord, we may truly glorify you and proclaim your excellencies. We ask this all In your son's name, amen.